17 years old, and I'm dead. Dove Faith Cafe. Real stories by real people. Welcome to Dove Faith Cafe. I'm Marie. You'll hear more from me later. First up today, a story from Don. This story is one of our most difficult stories to listen to, so be aware of that. Don tells the story of discovering later in life that he is both a father and a grandfather, unbeknownst to him. This joyful news, however, hides a very dark truth. In the midst of his joy, Don discovers tragedy. He realizes that only God can help him save his grandchildren. God gives him the strength he needs at just the right time. He becomes convinced of his purpose. As you listen to Don's story, I Know Why, remember, this story is difficult to hear, but well worth it. Please be aware. Seventeen years old, and I'm dead. I was involved in a car accident. I was a passenger, and we hit a patch of ice and went into a tree, and um, it crushed almost every bone on my right side, my legs, my arms, my ribs, my pelvis. Um, ribs that broke went into my lungs and collapsed my lungs, and my back was shattered into hundreds of pieces. And I always wondered while I was in the hospital, why me? You see, they had brought me back to life, and I wasn't quite sure why. Why me? Not why me, why me, like in why the pain, but why me as in why am I the one that gets to stay alive when so many more people in this world have gone through so much less and have not survived? Why me? Why was I still here? And as you go through life, Many things happen to you and you have different moments in life that you wonder if that is not the, the why me moment. I was a lifeguard. I have three Red Cross saves. I've saved an uh, elderly man from drowning when he was having a heart attack in the water. An eight-year-old that had snuck off into the deep end that was drowning that nobody had seen. And I always thought maybe that was my why me. Maybe that was it, you know. Or maybe it was the employee that I had that was standing on a chair with a noose around his neck ready to commit suicide, and I convinced him that wasn't the right thing to do and to reconcile with his parents and so they could have some closure and peace. Maybe that was the why me moment. Maybe it was my children that came along. Maybe they were here to be destined for something more special. Maybe that was my why me moment. But nothing ever really hit that why me moment um, as being the real reason why. I am sitting around one day and I get a instant message on Facebook. And it was just a, a young lady wanting to be my friend. And I get hundreds of those things and I always decline them, always delete them, always move on majority of them, I feel, were, were scammers, and I wasn't, you know, it just wasn't something I normally did, but for some reason, on this day that, that, that this instant message came across, something told me to go ahead and accept it. I have no idea why, but I thought, okay, well, we'll accept it and see what happens, and I accepted the, the instant message, and a little while later, I get a message, and it says, hello. I know you don't know who I am, but I think you're my dad. Now, at this point, after I pick my jaw up off the floor and go, what the heck is going on here? I go, well, wait a minute. This, this can't be real. And I, and I answered back. I just said, well, what would make you think that? And the response was, well, you have pictures of me on Facebook. And I said, okay, now in my head, I'm like, there's no way. I definitely don't have that. And I responded by saying that. I said, um, 
Yeah, I definitely do not have pictures of you on my Facebook. A few minutes later, a photograph came across. It was of a young, young, blonde, five-year-old girl with blue eyes and just absolutely gorgeous in this beautiful yellow sundress. And I thought, what a beautiful girl. And then I realized, you know, well, that's, that's funny that she sent that picture because that's my youngest daughter. So the response to that was, okay, that's actually my youngest daughter. So I don't know what kind of scam you're trying to pull, but not today. And a few minutes later, she asked me if I knew uh, this person's name, who was her mother. And I said, no, I don't recognize the name. Sorry. And she goes, well, let me send you one more picture. And she sends me another picture, and it's a side-by-side -side picture. And once again, it's got the beautiful young girl in the yellow sundress, which was, again, my daughter. But next to it was also a beautiful young blonde-haired five-, six-year-old girl in a white dress. And I'm looking at this. And I'm going, I don't remember my youngest daughter having this dress or, or I don't recognize the, the, uh, the environment she's in. It, it's not somewhere that was recognizable as the one in the yellow dress, which had my house and car in it. And I noticed they were, they were like identical twins. And I said, I, I don't know where you got this other picture from, but that's obviously my, my youngest daughter again. And the answer was, no, that's actually me. And that was taken to my grandparents' house. So for the next few days, we start talking quite a bit. And we, we realized that, you know, there is this possibility that she might really be my daughter. And we were spending hours and hours on the phone, falling asleep on the phone, um, asking each other all the questions that you ask. You know, what's your favorite color? What did you do? What's this? To the point of about five, six days into this um, my wife says to me, you're getting way invested into this, and you don't even know that this is really your daughter. You really need to go get a DNA test done. So I made the comment to her that, hey, you know, if, if this is true, let's go get a DNA test done. Uh, we, we can go get one done next weekend, and we'll make sure. And if I'm your dad, uh, I certainly would love to have that relationship. But if I'm not your dad, I will do everything I can because obviously you're seeking something and I will try to help you find your real father. And we did the DNA test, and then we had to wait like two weeks to get the results, and that was like the longest 14 days of our lives. We ended up meeting at a, a shelter at the halfway point between our homes, and, and I we had the envelope. It was sealed, and I asked her if she was ready, and she said yes. And the two of us were by ourselves um, just in anticipation. And we opened the envelope up, now, we were told that anything over 99.6% would be considered a positive match, uh, that I would be her, her father, and she was my daughter. When we opened it up, I looked at it, and it was 99.9995436. It was absolutely, no question, undeniably, this was my daughter. The emotions that come across you are unbelievable. The instant love for a child, the instant uh, anger for not being able to be there and know about this, for not being told about it, the guilt of not being around to help raise and, and to support and to help mold who this young lady was going to be. And we decided that we would continue on. We had a, a wonderful relationship. And, and let me ask, add this to this, that... As soon as I found out that instant moment that she was my daughter, I instantly became a grandfather of three. I'm now a grandpa. And uh, that was another whole other experience and emotions that went through. So for the next year, we, we continued to work our relationship and spent a lot of time talking to each other and spending time together. I helped her um, start a business, a bakery business at... Uh, that she had and we we went to we went and spent time together alone we we actually took a weekend father-daughter trip together to louisville to watch the musical wicked and just try to get 27 years back the best we could december 17th the 2017th though i got the phone call that no father ever wants to get daddy daddy my boyfriend's beat me up I don't know what to do. The police are here. 
but I don't know what to do. I'm scared and I don't know what to do. As a dad, you immediately know exactly what to do. You go to get and protect. But I'm two and a half hours away. So I told her, hang tight and I'd be right there. I got in my truck. I called my wife. I explained to her what's going on. Before I could even explain everything that was happening, her words to me was, get in your truck and go get those babies. She said, those grandchildren need to be out of that atmosphere. I told her I was on my way. Two and a half hours down, I made it in a lot less time because that's what dads do and i got there and we we packed up everything we could pack up and i said i'm going to take we're going to take the kids back up to to our house and uh you're going to follow us and we'll come up there we'll put everything up there and then we'll figure out what we're going to do and we made the track back now when we were coming back i said i wanted to take my grandson with me she could take the two girls and we'd meet and she insisted on taking my grandson and I said, well, you know, that's fine, whatever. I, I wasn't really sure. She said she needed to stop by the bakery to grab some stuff and he needed his help. So no problem. We switched some things around uh, so that I could fit two girls in my truck. And, and uh, he ended up going with his mother. And we get up there. And once we're there, we get them showered up, cleaned up, and, and put to bed. And we sat and we talked. And we decided that the best thing was that we keep these kids for about six months and let her go down and reestablish a place take care of her business and she would um, she would get settled back in somewhere and then pick up the kids in the summer and at that point they could move back in and she should be good to go so we have the grandkids and and you know going back to being a, a father figure again was was new and we're I'm, I'm talking to these children but they were doing some things that I felt were very strange very odd and I thought well maybe I'm just out of the loop now that I'm older maybe I just don't have the same tolerance for kids as I used to have maybe they're just odd and um they're just kids so you know maybe I'm reading something into it that it's not but you'd call them and you'd be like hey come here and it'd be uh straight very strange very rigid, very strength, hands down to the side with, with their hands in a fist, very tight-lipped, and they would say, yes, Papa, did you do this? Yes, Papa, no, Papa, will you? I will, I don't, I shouldn't, I can't. They were very canned, uh, like macro-type answers, and, and it just, it didn't make sense. They were very robotic. Again, I kind of, you know, put it off as just being a little odd. And so we, we were continuing on. Uh, but through the weeks, my grandson was having some issues. And, and just for the sake of, of time and, and, and embarrassment, I, I just say that there were some medical issues kind of going on that just didn't make sense. You know, I went to his school and I told talked to the principal and I said, look, this is happening. And if this happens to happen at school, I don't want to embarrass him or anything like that. So... I'm at home. Um, I work nights, so I'll be home. Just give me a call and I'll come help help out with the situation. And before I left, she said, well, I hate to say this, but I just want you to understand that this, this is the behavior of somebody who's been, been sexually abused. And I said, well, you know, I, I understand. I hear you, but, you know, that's, that's not the case here. It's just um, it might just be a little bit of defiance or something else going on, you know, that I don't know about. But, well, you know, I appreciate you letting me know. And a week later, things are still happening. I talked to my sister-in-law, and she happens to be somebody that works with with uh, children and um, foster children and stuff. And I explained to her what was going on. And said, "Do you have any hints that I could do that might help out?" And she said, "Well, not really. But what I can tell you is that those are signs of sexual abuse." And I'm like, "Okay, you're the second person that's told me that, but..." that's that's not even where we're at on this you know we just have this issue it's a, i think it's more of a behavioral thing and we need to see what we can do to fix it so we'll keep working with him on it um at home we go a little bit farther and i tell him if this continues to happen i'm going to take him to the hospital because something's obviously going on that we can't explain so i take him to the hospital after it happens another time and we get into the doctor and we're sitting there we're talking the doctor pulls me out of the room and he says, I just want you to understand that I've called a social worker to come talk to him. And I said, well, why? 
And he said, well, because, you know, the signs that he's doing are signs of sexual abuse. And we just need to rule that out. And I said, that's fine. I, I Okay, that's fine. So the doctor calls him in. We wait around. The, the gentleman comes in, does his, um, you know, gets to know him and um, breaks the ice with him. And he starts talking with him. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, my grandson breaks loose. And he says, my mom's boyfriend has done some bad things to me. And I'm in shock. I don't even know what to do. And he starts talking about some of the things that were happening. And absolutely, there was physical abuse. There was mental abuse. There was there was things going on. But then he was talking about sexual abuse and things that were happening. I called home. I, I explained to my wife we were going to be here for a little while and what was going on. And I would fill her in more about it when I got home. But this is what he was kind of saying at this point. Two hours later, we get done. I go home, and when I when I walk in, I see my elder granddaughter in a fetal position on my wife's lap in a chair, crying. My wife looks at me and just mouths the word without any vocal to it, that son of a... And we got the children finally to bed, and we talked about it. And the stories that my eldest granddaughter had opened up to my wife about and the story that my grandson had told to the social worker without each other knowing what anybody had said were almost identical. So we decided we're going to call the police the next day, which we did. They came out. They told us we had to run this down to Marion County, Indiana, because that's where uh, the, the supposed crime had happened. And we did. And we go through the whole stuff with them and the detective wants to talk to them each all three of the children so we drive to uh, Marion County we go into a, a, an area where children go and the detective pulls them in the back with a child advocacy person and starts interviewing each of them individually while they're doing this uh, you know they each go in they do their thing they're in there for uh, you know, anywhere from the, the shortest one, I think, was about 40 minutes, and the longest one was almost two hours. And when we're done, the detective um, pulls me and my wife aside into a room and says, all three of them are more than believable. He said, I've been doing this for almost 20 years. And he said, I'll, I'll let you know right now. I believe 100% of what they're saying. Because every one of them said the story almost identically. However, they said it very age appropriately and to a point of where they had no idea what questions I was going to ask. And they still were able to answer them the same. So they could not have been prepared or coached or anything. So from that, they arrest the, the boyfriend. Um, we end up having to go back down to Indianapolis to the prosecutor, child advocacy, and, and several other several other things while they're doing that to talk about what's going on. Um, again, same thing. The prosecutor says, I've been doing this a long time. These children are absolutely 100% telling the truth. Of course, the boyfriend is denying everything. The mom, when I was explaining to her what was happening, kept telling me this is ridiculous. That's not what happened. That they're very much good storytellers. And she was believing the boyfriend um, more so than she was believing the children, which I was very, just very disheartened by. Uh, as we get going, um, my older grandson starts getting kind of more of an anger issue going on because now that it's opened up, he's starting to feel the embarrassment of it. He's worried, sick that his friends at school might find out about this. And so he starts lashing out a little bit in, in some anger and so my wife had this great idea. We had this old, we had some old logs in the backyard and we took one of the logs back out and we, we put some nails in it and we handed him a, a hammer and said, look, whenever you're getting angry, go outside and start hammering those nails, right? So he's, he's out there one day and he's just hammering these nails and, and it was working. It, it, it really helped him make a release. He'd call, I'd tell him he could call this boyfriend whatever he wanted and, you know, of course, the worst he was coming up with as a, as a 10-year-old was, you know, you poo-poo head. And, um, but it helped him and, and, it, and it made them, him feel better. Well, one day he was out there, he's very upset, 
one day in the house. I bring him out back and I said, let's go. Let's go bang on the log for a while. And so I'm sitting there and I'm allowing him to, I'm getting ready to tell him to start hitting this log. And I said, look, I don't care what you say. You can say whatever you want to say. You can say a bad word, whatever that you feel like saying that will make you feel better. And so he starts hitting this nails and this log and he's just banging these nails and they're going deep inside this log. I mean, deeper than, than the head of the nail or going down into it. He's hitting them so hard. And the whole time he's screaming. And he's yelling, I hate you. I hate you. Why did you do this to me? Why did you do this to my sisters? I can't stand you. Why would you do this? Why would you do this to me, mom? I can't stand you, mom. I hate you, mom. I hate you, mom. Why would you do this, mom? And I thought, wait a minute. He said, mom. He didn't yell the boyfriend's name. He yelled, mom. And so I, I I stop him and I pull him over and we sit down this little bench out in the backyard and I put my arm around him and I said, I need you to explain to me why you said mom. And he looked at me and he said, I can't. And I said, you know, you're safe. Yes. And you know anything that, that you know, the boyfriend did, you understand you didn't do anything wrong, right? Yes. So anything that you that your mom did, you didn't do wrong either. And I need to know what you're talking about. And he says, I can't. And I said, why? He said, mommy said she would kill me if I talk. I said, when did she tell you this? And he said, all the way back from Indianapolis to your house, she kept telling me over and over again, you can never say anything. You understand that mommy could get in trouble. You can't say this, anything. So I told him, I said, look, you don't there's no option anymore we have to talk about this now but i am going to give you a reprieve because what i want to do is i'm just going to have you tell me one thing but what i want you to tell me is the worst thing that happened the absolute worst so that later on when you get to your counselors because by this time we had all the children in counseling and 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 that i said you know when you go back to your counselor this week the other stuff won't seem so hard to talk about because you've already talked about the worst thing. So tell me what the worst thing is. You just tell me one thing. And it took him for a while, but he finally looked at me and he says, you know all those things that the mommy's boyfriend did to me? And I said, yes. He says, mommy did them too. Now at this time, I got to stay strong. I can't get upset. I can't be up you know, the emotions and, and the... Everything that goes through me at that point of time is is just in an absolute freeze because I have to take care of him first. And I have no idea why, but for some reason, my wife just happened to walk out about that time. And she said, is everything okay? And I looked at her and I said, no, it's not. You need to take him in. He needs to take a shower so he feels better. And I need a minute. Now... My wife has known me well enough to know that that was very rare for me to say, a very different tone inflection than I ever had had, and she knew something wasn't right, but she also knew not to question it at that time. So she grabs him, she takes him in, and as soon as I see him walk through the door and he's out of sight, I break down. I can't hold it any longer. My stepson comes out. He doesn't know how to handle me. He's never seen me cry or be upset. He just puts his arm around me. He knows there's no words are going to be able to do anything. He doesn't even know why. He has no idea what's going on. He just knows that he needed to be there at that moment. When we get done, I explain to my wife and I call the detective and we talk about that. And he, once again, we have to go back down and do all the interviews. And again, they're believable. And they arrest my daughter for physical and sexual abuse charges. Now, the emotions, again, as a, as a dad, is unbelievable. I'm, I'm Once again, now I'm, now I'm going through different emotions, the betrayal by her. You know, you come into my life and then, and then lay this on me. The, the, the guilt, again, for not recognizing this with my, with my grandkids going on for over a year while they were still there. I should have picked up on it, you know. Um, I'm mad, I'm hurt, uh, I'm sad, and I'm lost. And so, 
you know, we 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 go to church. Um, my church family is there, and I start talking with 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 the bishop, and, and I start talking to the the priests, and and we we're trying to work through this and trying to stay strong through all of this and keep everything that goes with that. And time goes on, and we we get guardianship. They gave us emergency guardianship right away uh, when we found out about the boyfriend. But once we found out about mom, we, we got the temporary restraining order and uh, no contact order from her. And that was February of 2018. So now it's time to go to court. We've been down to Indianapolis, child advocacy, the prosecutor again, talking, having them, taking them, the kids to the courthouse, putting them in the courtroom, sending them in the witness stand, showing them what's going to happen, showing them how the monitor is going to cover uh, the block of view so they don't have to look at him other than just to identify him, and then they don't ever have to see him again. And the kids, in one way, are scared, but in another way, kind of excited about the newness of it. And, and they're, they're excited about being able to tell their story and put this man behind bars. And we get to the day of the, the trial. Three days before the trial, we had gotten the phone call from the prosecutor office saying, look, this is definitely going. He's definitely saying he didn't do anything. He's denying everything. And we're definitely going to have to go to go to trial. And I said, okay. So we, as we get to trial, uh, we, we go in, we get in there, we stay at the hotel the night before, then, then we get into the, the witness room the next morning, early in the morning, and we're, we're in, the, in this room uh, away from everybody in the courtroom. We're not allowed in there so that we can't hear what's going on. And I'm watching the clock, and I realize it's about that time. Now, the kids are nervous. I'm being strong in front of them. But all of a sudden, I got all the, the everything going on with my, everything's going on with my stomach and everything. So I go across the hall to the, to the men's room. And as I'm sitting over there in this small bathroom with this, this turquoise tile that just was awful, I look in the mirror and I, I just start praying. And I just say, God, please, please don't make these children go through this. They've been through enough in their lives. They're scared. And this is just going to bring up all these emotions again. Please don't make them go through this. And as I'm, as I'm talking, I literally lose my legs from out from under me. And I fall to the ground. And I'm sitting there on my knees. And I, say, I just continue praying. I'm just, God, do to me what you need to do. Do whatever I will do, anything you need me to do. Just please don't make these kids go through this. But if that is your will and that is what you want, if you want these children to go through this and, they, and this is what you see as the right way, please make them strong enough to be able to go through it. About that time, this big bailiff comes in and he looks at me and goes, Mr. Campbell, we need you. And he reaches his hand down. All I see is his hand and some brown pants. <laughs> and I grab his hand and he and he lifts me up and we walk out the, the bathroom door and we walk down the hallway a few feet, um, you know, and he puts his arm around me and he says, you're going to be OK. And he just gives me this sideways hug as we're walking. And it just felt so good, except for the gun that was re going into my ribs that was not so good but that was okay because the rest of it felt so wonderful and I thought thanks God thank you for putting him here we walk in I sit there I see that uh, as soon as I walk in uh, the judge calls up the attorneys uh, the prosecutor the defendant's attorney a bailiff court reporter all to the bench they're sitting there they're talking for a few minutes and they look back at me and the next thing I know the prosecutor's walking back to me. And she says, I want you to understand this is 100% your call. You say yes or no. But here's my gift to you. And she hands me papers. It's, a, it's three pages long. And on it says, plea bargain. In exchange for his three-page confessional that he wrote out of everything he had done, he will accept 30 years in prison. 30 years now, I don't know if you understand a plea bargain, but a plea bargain of 30 years tells you how long he was looking at 
anywhere from 80 to 120. So that can tell you the dark, twistedness stuff that was going on. And I looked at it and I said, does this mean? And I couldn't even get it out. She said, yes. This means he signs it. There's no way to appeal it. And the kids do not have to testify. And I just start crying. I said, yes, absolutely. We're going to accept this. And we accepted it. Went and told the kids. The kids were ecstatic and happy. We went over, had some barbecue and some ice cream. And everybody was happy. And a few few weeks later, though, now we have to do this again, right? Because now we have mom. Now, mom's looking at uh, a lot as well. But the prosecutor comes to me and says, we're going to have to do the same thing. We're going to have to get all the stories. I'm not sure we're really going to be able to get this. This is going to be a lot harder. Convictions on mothers against their own children are, are extremely difficult to get. So we talked about it for a little while. And I looked at her and I said, look, I'm not going to do this. The kids are not going to testify against their mom. Because I don't know what the long-term effects of that's going to be. Knowing that you put your own mother in prison... And having to relive that and everything that goes on, I'm not sure that the payout of putting her in prison for a long time is worth the reward or the risk of what may come from that. So therefore, we're not going to do it, but I will still testify and the detectives willing to testify. And let's just roll with it. She says, you know, we're not going to get it. We're not going to get that kind of uh, conviction. So we're going to go for three felony child endangerment. And uh, I said, okay. So we go through this, uh, the detective does his small bit, takes him 15, 20 minutes or whatever, and then I get on the stand and I testify against my own daughter. Now again, there's a betrayal moment at one moment. Here I am trying to put felonies on my own daughter. And at the same time, I'm thinking to myself, here I am saving three kids from what could be more abuse. Well, when it was all said and done, the jury came back and found her guilty on three felony charges each of which were for one year uh, jail sentence uh, suspended for probation on each of those. And uh, she had to wear a ankle bracelet for the first year. But also came with that was still a no contact order. Uh, she was not allowed to talk to these children. We're now almost three years past that sentencing date. Uh, we're coming up in October for where she's actually going to be off of that probation, and we have new challenges ahead of us there. But I want to say right now, this, this, th these children will be with me now for five years come December 17th of 22. It'll be five years. And these kids are absolutely amazing children that I can't be more proud of what they have gone through and overcame and found ways to conquer. They don't allow themselves to be the victims. They know what they've been through. They're dealing with what they've been through. They deal with the emotions when they come up and they know how to ask for help now. And, you know, when I was talking about doing this story, I thought to myself, I can't really do this without them knowing I'm going to do this because I don't know at what point they may hear about it. I don't know who's going to hear about it and know who they are and might say something. And it, I'm going to have to explain to them how to react to that situation if it does happen. And when I told them, they all said, yeah, that's no problem. We understand, Papa. But my grandson said to me, and, and, and he looked at me and he said, Papa, you know, I'm a little embarrassed about you doing this. Because I'm afraid some people, my friends or something might find out. But he said, then again, maybe this will help somebody. And if it's helped somebody, you got to do it. So when I look back now and think about that why me moment when I was in the hospital, why me? Yeah, I don't so much think about that anymore. Why me? Because I have three kids coming down the stairs every morning saying, good morning, Papa. I love you. I think I know my why me moment now. Is that, is that the last step? Is that really the why me? I don't know. Who knows what's planned for us in the future. But I will tell you one thing. If that's not my why me moment and another one comes along, I'm ready for it. Thank you so much. If you have a faith story you'd like to tell, go to our website at dovefaithcafe.org to find out how you can share your story. 
If you like what you hear, let us know. Please subscribe and share and leave a review. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram and on our website, dovefaithcafe.org. Hello, my name is Marie Gambetta, and uh, I am here with my co-host, Jordan Trendleman, seminarian. <laughs> and Hello. we joined today uh, by Bishop Doug Sparks. He is the Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Northern Indiana. I've been thinking about, about how all this story was put into motion long before Don and Denise knew anything about it, right? I was thinking about how in the beginning of his story, he says he just got this random text that he normally would just ignore, but for some reason he didn't, right? Mm -hmm. And and of course, you know, that was God working and trying to lay the groundwork so that these children would have a safe place to land. And, and I see in his story so many places where God shows up either before we need God or as we need God. I mean, I think about the bailiff, you know, who tells Don, you know, it's, it's going to be okay. You're going to get through this. And it was just so unexpected and so needed, you know, um, I, I love that story. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and in that moment when, when Don was, you know, in the bathroom praying and he's, he was begging God, please don't make them go through this, please. But if it's your will that they go through it, make them strong enough to bear it. Yes. You know, yeah. I, I love that. I love that prayer. I just do. Um, yeah. 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 It, it, it hearkens to, you know, the experience of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, that, yes. that, that if, um, if, if this cup can pass me by, you know, please, please let it pass me by. But if not, you know, give me the grace to endure what I need to yeah. endure. And, um, I think we find there, there are pl plenty of opportunities in our own lives when we, we sort of, sort of bring that to voice, don't we? That, gosh, yeah. <laughs> help me, help me to face this. Or if, if yeah. it can pass me by, please, please let it. Please. Right. Right. I was also just amazed at how, um, you know, and I know that the whole family has been in therapy from the very beginning as, as is very appropriate. Um, but how Don and Denise knew to, to put a log in the yard and, and have him bang nails into it. I mean, <laughs> who, who knows how to do that? Unless you're, unless you're licensed, you know, as a, as a clinical therapist, how do you know to do that? And maybe they had some good advice, but holy smokes, that, that was just incredible. And, and even, even in the moment, you know, Don saying, all right, tell me the worst thing so that everything after this is going to be easier. Just tell me the worst thing. And who knows how to do that? I mean, that was God's grace right there. Mm -hmm. I, I just, I was just so amazed at, again, grace, at the grace that Don and Denise had at every step of the way through this process. And the faith that, that they were going to be strong enough to endure the answer to those questions. I mean, there's a lot of questions uh, that had to be asked in the course of this that you don't want the answers for, right? <laughs> and sometimes yeah. those are really hard questions to muster up the, the strength slash faith that we can endure the answer, you know? And there's there's yeah. that, that ongoing dialogue. Um, <clears throat> It's just such a testament to 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 Don's faith faith life that that uh, he he could trust God enough in that process or or see God enough even in this horrible um, side of humanity that he was witnessing that he would trust God enough to still ask those questions that needed to be asked and then be responsible for the answers he received is just a real. Uh, spiritual strength. I mean, that's a spiritual fortitude that I think a lot of people would struggle with uh, in, his, yeah. in his position. Yeah, certainly true. Certainly, uh, the the um, well, I mean, the, the the sort of reliance on grace, obviously, and and also um, the 
the reliance for Don and Denise on the people at St. Paul's to walk, yeah. walk, th walk through them, walk with them through, through all of this. And I mean, and that, you know, um, that takes a lot of courage. It, it does. And, 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 you know, um, some, sometimes I think it's easy to kind of, um, sort of live, live in a way that says, well, if, you know, if they really knew this about, if they knew what I was going through, they really wouldn't, they wouldn't want that. But, but mm -hmm. to, to have, to have the ability to sort of disclose, this is what's going on in our life and to have the, the, the people at St. Paul's and others respond by saying, you know, uh, we're here with you. We're, we're going to walk with you through this and, and to move beyond the sort of uh, awkwardness of being able to share this information obviously appropriately but but then then to be supported you, you know um it's it's it moves communities beyond a, a, a kind of being nice to one another uh, and and really really being committed to, to address this the struggle and the difficulties of our lives right that that that's a that's another manifestation of of the kind of community uh that saint paul's that's the people at saint paul's are you know to to walk with some integrity and say, well, you know, that there's, there's nothing, nothing that we're going to be afraid of. We're going to deal with it with you, you know, and, mm -hmm. and that, and then, and then throughout the process, it was, you know, it's, it's not like one thing. It was this entire process that they were, yeah. walking, right. It was a long, it was a long process. Yeah. Yeah. But then watching those kids get to be fully kids at camp, I mean, to be with all the other kids, to be just like all the other kids and to do all the silly things that the kids do. I'm just so envious, Jordan, that you got to be there with them and you got to witness all of that. I mean, I, I don't know if, if, you know, if he was in your cabin on purpose, I, I, or if it was just, you know, God intervening, but holy cow, what a, what a gift to, to, to both of you, really. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I left in general, left that experience feeling as though, you know, uh, you know, you go there expecting to be, uh, you know, a voice of reason or a, a guide or, or a teacher. <laughs> and you, you, you definitely, in my experience, I, I learned much more from, from my campers than I think that I imparted to them. You know? um, just their, their level of compassion and empathy for each other is just, um, yeah. You know, there's a there's a there's a hardness and callousness that I think that we have to fight against as, as we get as we get older and, mm. and spend time experiencing in the world. You know, and it, it even ties back into what we were just talking about that like that that their church home that that Don's church home was able to foster that kind of safe space. I mean, yeah. it's it's a it's a place that we can we can practice working through some of these issues in a, in a, in an I, more ideal environment before we have to work through these issues in a less than ideal yeah um, environment and so like i mean that that sense of community is just amazing and, and surprisingly lacking for a lot of people and that's 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 sad and outside of you know an average sunday attendance and decline in, in membership and all these issues that we talk about in the church what's what's ultimately declining in, in in a culture in that sense is that is that safe space that safe leveling environment where each person's value uh, is, is equal and their and their needs are equal uh, uh, as as being concerning. Um, it's it's a lacking feature in a lot of places, and so I mean that's just an amazing part of the story. And I think I think it's why yeah. we keep going back to it. You know. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of one of the last lines is something that that's probably always going to stay with me, and it's something that Isaac said to Don. Um, you know, when Don was just very up front with them and said, you know, I'm going to be telling this story if it's okay with you guys. And, you know, at first, at first they were embarrassed. And then Isaac said, you know, Papa, if this can help one person, you have to do it. You have to do it. And that just, I mean, he's a kid, <laughs> you know, he's a kid. How, how, again, it's God's grace that he has the maturity to see beyond himself and his, his discomfort uh, or embarrassment, you know, I, that just, that just renders me nearly speechless. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I said it earlier, but, but his, his, his zone, his, his spiritual maturity is, is well beyond his, his age, I think. And I, and I don't, um, you know, would never, never under any circumstances say that certain things happen for, for a reason. I think that's a very callous outlook, right? But it is amazing to see what opportunities God can produce in the most de- depriving and, and, and horrific set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and to witness his, his spiritual maturity at, at that age, it, it's, 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 it's all inspiring, you know? But, uh, you know, it's also indicative, once again, of the community and of Don and, and Don's wife and, and, and the nurturing of that in light of, all, of everything that's, you know, yeah. so. And and I, I I think it's also so when when these kinds of things occur in the life of especially young people, um, uh, the they they also look to how the adults are responding or reacting to the to the things that are going on, and it it is certainly it is certainly uh true that uh outrage and and disgust at the actions that have taken place is appropriate but at the same time that you know that um that you you've probably heard this in uh, in other contexts you know someone like Ellie Wiesel who who survived the holocaust you know that there are people there are people who went through that experience who came out hardened and mean and cruel and bitter and and then there are other people who did not and 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 so the potential understandably for someone to be mean and hurt and angry and violent and is understandable in, in these kinds of situations but but in the midst of all of all of this both Don and Denise and the community supporting them did not did not turn to to rage and hatred and i mean it, it was that that's that's a that's a, a grace moment too right i mean it's mm-hmm. like when when you're faced with what what we know about and then to have the capacity to say you know um i'm i'm not i'm not going to be hateful i'm not going to be mean spirited and i'm not going to be vengeful because uh, that's yeah. that that's could be understandable right i mean that that's um, that's one way to respond to what's happened, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, this has been a great discussion. Thank you both so much. Any last thoughts? I I just uh, want to I want to just say publicly. I I think um, the 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 ability to to share one's faith stories is is really a compelling way to engage engage in the process of evangelism that that um in in the midst of being able to talk about one's life events and to see or or recognize god's presence in and through those kinds of events uh, God's grace, uh, God's healing, uh, the, the spirits hovering, uh, really, really is what what moves us to say that that's, that that storytelling, faith storytelling, and sharing is really a way to engage uh, other individuals to say, "Gosh, if 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 is that the God that was messing around in my life too, you know, that, that, that I recognize mm. in the lives of, and the experiences of others. Yeah. Right. So yeah, um, that, that's how we, we come to, to walk alongside on, on the, on the Emmaus road, you know, as, as, yeah. as we're talking about the, the stories of, of sadness and hope and loss of hope. And then, you know, mm-hmm. the risen Christ comes walking up alongside us here, you know, mm-hmm. oh, what are you talking about? How, how can I share that with you? So. Yeah, and, and Emmaus came up in my mind when early in this conversation as well, Bishop, and, and this idea that, that reoccurs through Don's story, where he's saying, you know, why me, why me? You know, all along he's being primed and prepared for this crucial pivoting point in his in his in his story, 
Yes. Um, and and he's he's not you know Jesus walks with the disciples on on the road there for quite some time and is until later that they realize who they've been in the presence of you know and there's yeah. that kind of overarching idea in Don's story and and Don's story is incredible because there's so many aspects of it that we can't even comprehend being in his shoes for but that at the very core of it too we've all had that moment of saying why me why do I exist what's this purpose and so despite his story being so exceptional in some ways having experienced things that we hope to never have to be in close proximity to ourselves there's also an underlying current that we can all connect to and it's just what makes it so incredibly powerful not just in his story but as like like bishop already said so well as a medium for evangelism and and, and connection with others that is so true that's so true so i have to tell you um when, when Don first approached me about sharing his story, I had been talking with him a little bit about Dove Faith Cafe and what, what it was going to be like. And he said, I want to tell my story. And I, I, <laughs> I have to admit, I discouraged him. I said, Don, I, I, don't, I, I don't think you're ready. I think you need to process this for a while longer. I mean, he was just really where the story leaves us, where his story leaves us, that's, that's about where he was. And I said, I just don't know that it's a good idea yet. I think, I think you need some time. And he said, no, I'm ready. I'm, I'm really ready. And I said, okay, well, I will pray about it. You pray about it and let's think about it. And then guess what happened next? COVID. <laughs> so Don had a good, you know, year and a half or more to process it and to pray about it. And, and so, you know, sometimes I wonder with God's timing, you know, I think, God, why, why COVID? We're ready to go. And, you know, it's not about me. I, I realize that again every day. It's not about me. <laughs> so, well, I want to thank you both for joining me for this really important conversation. Um, and, and Don's story is a gift to us. And, um, and I hope this conversation is, is a gift back to him. And I hope all of this is a gift to, to other people. Amen. So thank you. Maria. Thank you, Maria. Jordan, thank yeah. you so very much. Blessings to both of you. Thank Blessings you. to you. Thank you. Thank you, Bishop Doug. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. I'd like to give a shout out of thanks to our storyteller, Don, my co-host, Jordan, and our special guest, Bishop Douglas Sparks. Extra special thanks to our audio engineer, Father Tom Adamson. Thanks for making us sound better than we really do.